You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone, Harsha here, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing Reality right here on WQHS Radio, Pang Student Run Radio. It is truly amazing to be with you guys here once again. And for all of you who don't know, my name is Harsha, aka DJ Harsh, and it really means a lot to have you guys tune in for my show today at 10 p.m. EST. So Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are changing their own reality in the little ways that they can. So we'll be uh, meeting and hanging out with uh, change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, top executives, to even people who are artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world. And also from here at the Penn campus too. So we get to hear these inspiring stories on how everyday people can change the world around them through whatever it is they are doing. And I wanted to do this show simply because um, I feel like there are so many untold stories of people who do phenomenal things, make waves in the lives of others, and set the stage for the rest of us to live in the world that we want to. And I'm super passionate about learning about these stories because I feel like when we get connected to the lessons and the ideas that the people who are currently running the world um, share with us, we know how to build a better future as well. Personally, I founded a youth movement uh, called Ascendance in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that collaborates with the Malaysian Ministry of Education to help provide alternative education platforms for any student who wants to change their own reality. And we work with students from elementary and high school through various sessions, programs, experiential learnings, uh, projects, to get them connected to these kinds of experiences so that they too know that they can change the world around them. But, of course, with the right guidance, the right information, and the right inspiration. So that's why I wanted to do the show, to continuously spread these good messages um, from people who inspire me personally. And to date, um, at Ascendance, we've worked with over 4,000 students in 270 different communities. And we've helped students between the age of 8 to 21 discover what they love doing, get real-world experiences, and even start their own careers, their own social enterprises or projects while they're still in school. And today we're bringing that here onto the Penn campus um, through various initiatives, and one of them is Changing Reality, so that we can document stories of Penn alumni, uh, great groundbreaking individuals, and top executives who, once again, have mastered the skill of leaving their mark on the world. So we have with us here on today's show a very special guest. We have Joshua Frank, who is the Director of Employee Relations at Amazon, which for all of you who did not know, is actually one of the top five most valuable companies in the world. So even though that itself is a huge feat, Joshua is, uh, has also had a long successful career as General Counsel and Head of Human Resources in several other global MNCs. He has uh, masterfully managed to merge two very interesting fields, HR and law, into a role that allows him to not only identify problems, but also find solutions and build high-performing teams, uh, and build employee relations and employees that actually um, are capable of um, doing amazing things as well. Under his leadership, um, as his time as vice president at um, DHL, the Minority Corporation Council Association uh, actually named the legal department of DHL in 2012 as the employer of choice. Um, and I think that's an award that they won for the whole South Southwest region. 
during his um during his time as VP there. So he just shows that he has the results in not just bringing together people, but bringing together a diverse workforce towards a singular goal. He also received the Alliance 2015 Flex Leadership Award. And with all of this success, I think that it's undeniable that there is so much that we can learn with uh, learn from him. So without further ado, I'd like to invite Joshua onto the stream so that we can um, hear his story too. Hi, Joshua, how are you? <laughs> Good, Harsha. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I heard you just got the COVID vaccine. Hopefully that is um, well. And all of our friends here today are encouraged to end the pandemic in their little ways as well. <laughs> yeah, I just saw today actually that Penn is requiring all students to have the vaccine for the fall semester. So everyone needs to get their vaccine now. I know, I know. I'm still waiting in line. So congrats to you. <laughs> and thank you so much for being on the show. Hopefully you're feeling well. How are you doing today? Yeah, totally fine. Thank you. If I'm going to have a bad day, it'll be tomorrow, but it, it's not bad. <laughs> Getting a vaccine is good. And whatever side, side effects I have for a short period of time are much better than having COVID. So I am very happy to get the shots and be done. All right. So better a day of exhaustion than potential death from virus. Got it. Already Definitely. we're having so much words of wisdom. <laughs> but um, yeah, thank you once again for being on the show. And um, again, if you missed my introduction, I think that there's just so many amazing things that you have done and you've just kind of like changed the way that for me that I've always looked at um, HR and law by kind of bringing them together. So I think that's very inspiring. But I have to ask, where did all of this actually start? Like um, you were a student here at Penn, you did your um, bachelor's degree here. Uh, is that where your inspiration from law came or where does the journey start in a way? Yeah. Um a bit, uh, you know, I always had in the back of my mind going to law school uh, I, back in the early 90s when I graduated from Penn. I graduated in 93. Um, it was, you know, if you didn't know what you wanted to do with your life, it was like, well, I'll just go to law school. So I didn't know what I was going to do. So, uh, you know, I always thought about it, but I was too um, not directed enough to take the LSAT. So I, I wasn't ready to go after graduation. Uh, so I ended up spending a year in Washington uh, I, through a long series of strange events, ended up working in an amazing job uh, in the office of the Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives. So I uh, had an incredible job. Uh, and when I was there, uh, I had a lot of very, I mean, he had some of the most brilliant people in Congress in Washington working for him. Uh, and I got to meet a ton of people, a lot of lawyers, a lot of people with law degrees. And a lot of them suggested to me that I should go to law school. So I took the L LSAT. Uh, I did some applications and then the decision became pretty easy. Uh, my boss was, well, he ended up losing his election he was the first sitting speaker to lose in like a hundred something years. Uh, so uh, that made the decision very easy to go to law school because theoretically I was out of a job at that point. Uh, and so that's how I ended up in law school. And I thought I would go and then go back into politics, but I actually kind of fell in love with, with law school or at least the study of law. Uh, and so that sort of set me on my path. Okay, well, how did you even get a job at the House of Representatives? I mean, like, that's such a huge deal in a way. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very pen story. So um, <laughs> one, of my, one of my professors was a young whippersnapper at the time named Frank Luntz, who is now a fairly well-known uh, political consultant. He's uh, on TV a lot. Uh, he had gotten my, my housemate a, a, an internship. Uh, and a very coveted one with a big media consultant at the time. Uh, and 
through a series of events, uh, Frank was going to work for a presidential campaign, wanted to bring my roommate with him or my housemate with him. Uh, but he had promised a great student to uh, this, this media consultant, this very famous media consultant. So he said, what am I going to do? And, and my housemate said, well, you know, Josh doesn't do anything in the summer, which isn't true. I actually worked. Um, unlike most people who did internships, I, I just needed to make money. Uh, so we spoke and I spoke to my parents and I kind of figured out a way to try to earn a lot of money in like the month that I was home and then started in DC a little later, but ended up doing a couple of months there with this media consultant. And they're one of these super well-connected in those days. I think there were even more of these kind of DC people who knew everybody. And so when I graduated, I literally, the consultant's wife actually, who I became quite friendly with said, oh, just come to Washington and we'll find you a job somewhere. And that's actually how it happened. Uh, they represented the speaker and they had no, uh, an opening. It was a really low level job, but um, it was still cool. I sat steps from the, uh, the house chamber and had full access to the building. I used to give dome tours. So if you look in the House of Representatives, there's stairs going all the way up to the top of the dome. And I used to give those tours all the time. I loved it. Uh, so it was an amazing experience. And, and uh, you know, it was through a connection, but it was a connection that I sort of earned, right? Because I, I impressed my professor and he thought I was worthy of this internship, at least his second choice. Uh, but I had never even asked because I was just trying to make money. I didn't think of internships. So that's how I ended up there. Uh, so it was a very strange series of events. No, no, it's very interesting. So either guys impress your professors, make sure you do well in school and also make sure you have the right housemates. So like both are important. Yes. <laughs> yes. But no, no, yes. it is anything that it really does show um, how you probably impressed them so much that they thought, you know what, he needs to be in Washington. He needs to be able to make changes. So congrats. And then you went to law school and how was um, going to law school? Because I've heard that Penn is a very fun and kind of, I wouldn't say easy going, but like um, it, it's like there's so many activities, clubs, so many things that you can do at law school, I've heard by comparison, can be a little bit more serious. So how was the contrast for you as someone who had just entered in a sense? Yeah, I mean, law school, I think any grad school, but particularly law school felt much more like a job. Uh, you, you don't have, I didn't have that connection to campus. So I went to Georgetown. So I actually stayed in DC, which was convenient. Um, but the Georgetown Law School is nowhere near campus. It's actually on Capitol Hill uh, in a not great area. Maybe it's better now. Back then it was next door to the homeless shelter and, and uh, it was, it was uh, a little sketchy at night walking to the, to the metro stations. But uh, it, it, so it was a job, it felt like. And I, I went to class, I studied, you know, nights and weekends, you sometimes had free time, but it, 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 I worked hard and not, not like Penn. In fact, uh, I was in mask and wig at Penn and, and love doing the shows and singing and dancing and, and writing and all that. And uh, Georgetown, I don't know if they still do, but they had something called the Gilbert and Sullivan uh, Society. Basically, it was a group of people who were part of the Georgetown law community. So they actually had professors and students and other uh, staff members who participated and put on shows. And I, I tried out and then my friend said, you know, are you crazy? Like, what are you doing? We're in first year of law school. We're studying 16 hours a day. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. What am I doing? And uh, and I had known someone, actually, my RA my freshman year had had been one of the stars. He was an amazingly talented guy. He had been in Penn 6, uh, Penn, Pennsylvania 6, 5,000. And he had done the shows. But I, I uh, smartly, I think, dropped out uh, because it was hard enough with all the studying. So yeah, it was hard. But 
it's no harder than a job. And so it's actually sort of good training for going to work because, you know, it, <laughs> school, college is, is, feels hard. It's harder than high school generally, but it's not a real, it's not still not real life. And, and law school is a nice transition. It's a little more like real life, I would say. Okay, that's both comforting and not at the same time, but I'll just, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm like, all right, I was like, I thought that this was hard, but it gets harder, but it's all right, I'll, I'll deal with it later. But, um, so, pre-meds. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, no, pre-meds have it. Pre-meds work hard. I don't know how many other people work hard in college. Maybe M&T people, there are, I mean, I'm sure it's harder now than it was then, college, you know, it was the 90s, things were not as serious. <laughs> Okay, okay. And and after you were in law school, what was the first job that you got? And um, how was it like, again, you mentioned from going from undergrad to grad itself was a leap of work. And then how was it like in your first job, in a sense? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it is funny how things work out. So uh, I needed a job after. So the way law school works is you, you sort of scrap for a job after your first year. So your first summer, essentially, you have, you know, your Three, three years of law school. So you have two summers basically while you're in school. Your first summer, you're kind of scrounging for a job. Law firms, the big law firms are not looking for, uh, so, you know, summer associates for generally first years. So everyone looks for jobs. Georgetown uh, has a very, I think the most robust, what they call clinical program in, in the country. Clinical programs are just basically where you act like a lawyer, even though you're still a student, usually representing people who can't afford to pay for lawyers. So there was a clinic at Georgetown called, uh, and usually you're defending students and I mean, um, uh, criminals and you know helping people with divorces or estate issues, you know, stuff like that, um, family court. This was called the Federal Legislation Clinic. And it was um, really representing nonprofits that had legislative issues, uh, bills they wanted drafted, you know, laws enacted, regulations, et cetera, that couldn't afford lawyers. So the woman who ran uh, the clinic at the time, Clyde Feldblum, uh, was a, she had actually written the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, which passed in 1990. So this was the summer of 95. Uh, and we represented her old client, which was the Consortium of Citizens with Disabilities, which was a group, a mega group, which DC has sometimes, of about 50 disability rights organizations uh, who got together to help passed the law. And then what we were doing was trying to get regulations and legislative history and all kinds of different things done after the law passed. It still hadn't really been fully enacted. Uh, once a law like that, especially a complex one like that, it takes years before all the regulations and everything kind of shakes out. So I represented them that summer. I worked on the ADA. I actually got some legislative history written into the congressional record. Uh, so when, and then the following fall, so right after the summer, the way it works is you do all of your interviews for summer associate programs so that your second summer is when all the law firms want students. Every firm I interviewed, and I was interviewing in some DC firms, a lot of New York firms. I'm from New York originally. Uh, I was looking in Miami where I am now because uh, my wife and girlfriend was from there and I, I wanted to see if I could get a job down there. Uh, but I, I was interviewing with a ton of firms and every firm I spoke to, even the big corporate firms that I didn't even know had labor and employment departments all wanted to talk to me about labor and employment because I knew more about the ADA than any of their lawyers, right? Someone who had been practicing for 40 years didn't know anything about this new law more than I did. And I knew the author, I knew uh, I had written legislative history as I talked about my experience. So it became very obvious to me that this is where I was going to get pigeonholed one way or another. Fortunately, I found the work quite interesting. I had taken 
or I was taking labor law at the time and, and like the class. So I chose to go to what was considered the best labor law firm or the firm. I mean, it's a, it's a, they have every practice, but uh, the firm with the best labor practice in New York city. Uh, and so that's how I ended up. Uh, and they actually had an office down here in South Florida. So it sort of worked out perfectly for me. And that's how I ended up on my career. And it's amazing. This is, that was 1990 summer of 96. So this is now 25 years later. And you know, my whole life work life has been, uh, pretty much directed because I did that summer, uh, that first year summer job and did the ADA and I've been down that path ever since. Okay, but this is such an interesting story. So you go from a student in Penn whose roommate couldn't go for this internship, then you end up being this super pro in Washington, then you end up in law school with this one clinical program that kind of like is the leading expert in a particular labor law. And then you go and have this amazing summer where you make changes, make things happen. And then suddenly it's kind of like, you've created you you are known for this now in a sense you or you're at least kind of like yeah. somewhat an expert in it which, which is such an amazing story and i feel like everyone wants to do to be an expert in something it's just that we don't know how to go about it and for you it's kind of like everything fell into place so it's like wow it's like something you were meant to do in a way and how was that experience now um after um, graduating law school, um, going to a corporate firm, um, and in that corporate firm itself, I've heard that the work can be very tiring and um, very um, taxing in a sense, especially for someone who is new. So what was your experience? And it's also at the same time very, um, I would say, um, challenging. So that must have been fun too. But what were your thoughts on it? Yeah. So, and, and first I do want to say, you know, I did have, I mean, I talk about these opportunities as if it was dumb luck, which in some ways it was. But um, these opportunities do come along in life sometimes. And I always say the door sometimes is ajar, but you have to kick it open and, and walk through. And, you know, for me, you know, I got that opportunity to get the internship in DC, but I impressed the media consultant, I impressed his wife. Um, I worked for the speaker, I impressed him, I impressed his wife. I actually got a letter of recommendation from him that I think helped get me into Georgetown, frankly. Um, once I was at Georgetown, they were impressed that I'd worked for the speaker, so I got that job. But then not everyone got to do the cool stuff I did. Actually, the, um, the woman who ran the clinic, usually she had third years working in the clinic. She said I did a better job than most of her third years. And I'm not saying this to brag because it was a long time ago, but more that it wasn't just that I got these opportunities. It's what you do with them. So uh, that's, that's always the key. They, they pop up. I didn't know at the time these were going to be life-changing you know, <laughs> opportunities. Yeah. Uh, it's only in hindsight that I can look back and, and realize how lucky I was, but also how I took advantage of the, of the opportunity. Um, so I think that's, that's important for anyone thinking about these things. They don't, they don't just land on you. You have to um, be an active participant in, uh, in, in using these, these, um, these opportunities when they come up. So working in a big law firm, uh, it's not for me. I hated pretty much every second of it. I mean, I had fun in the sense that it was like gallows humor with my friends. We, it's a, it was a big class, we had 51 people. And uh, we, I, had, I still have some very good friends from that experience. Um, but it's, it's very hard, it's very tedious. You brought up a good point, which is um, I did have an expertise uh, first in the ADA, but then I really, and, and this is advice I give, I speak to a fair number of, of uh, student groups at times, 
I always give this advice, which is, especially when you're young like that and you're out of school, if you don't have a lot of responsibilities, you don't have a family, work like crazy and develop skill. There's no shortcut to it, right? It's just putting in the work, but nobody can take that away from you. No one can take away from me that I know what I'm talking about when it comes to my area of law that I know. And, uh, you know, things change and you have to adapt and you forget some things, but uh, I've, I, really, really worked hard for the first, I mean, I still work hard, but I really, really worked hard those first three, four, five years of my career and really learned. Uh, you go to law school, they always say law school, they teach you how to think and how to analyze, but they don't teach you practical skills, really. They don't teach you the law uh, that you're going to be practicing. Um, clinic programs try to change that. I think law schools have tried to change a little bit, but when I went, it really was not practical. I used to joke that, um, every paralegal and every secretary in the office knew more than I did about how to practice law. And it was true. Um, but I, I picked it up as quickly as I could and really developed knowledge because that is what makes you, you know, what they call it the knowledge economy. That's what makes you not, that's what makes you valuable in the marketplace. Uh, and I've, I've, I've been very fortunate in my career. I've never looked for a job. Every job has come and found me. Probably not the best way to run a career because <laughs> I've, I have not planned anything. It's just someone comes to me and says, hey, we have a cool job for you. I say, oh, that sounds like fun. Let me try that. But that's the truth. But but I think that goes back to like the thing you said about maximizing opportunities. Like, yeah. um, like in hindsight, it probably all looks like, hey, everything flowed nicely in a sense. But like, I'm sure at that time, it's like, you don't know what's going to happen next, right? So it's no. just like, how, and you mentioned this really good point that, that I agree with, which is you got to work like crazy and you got to put in the work for it. But at that point of time, like when you were in that position and things like that, what what was going on in your mind that actually enabled you to use these opportunities so well and actually enabled you to work the way that you did? Was it just Fear. like I had nothing to do? No, I was Fear? I was afraid. To, yeah, I was scared to death. I used to walk into the office every day. This is true. And I, I told somebody this. I told the there was like a woman who ran the first year program uh, for the new associates. I said, I honestly walk in here every day and just expect you to say, Josh, can you come in the office? Listen, it, it occurs to us that you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you're talking about when we're paying you this ridiculous amount of money, which is not ridiculous these days, but it was to me back then. Um, and you don't know what you're doing. And we can't, like, you, I'm sorry, like, we like you, you're a nice person, but we can't employ you anymore. And that fear drove me to tr always try to do an excellent job to, to earn my keep every single day I went to work. And honestly, I'm you know, almost 50 years old now. And I still have that attitude. I'm not quite afraid of getting fired every day, but I do very much feel like every day I go to work, I have to earn, I'm getting paid a ridiculous amount of money and I need to earn every day, earn that salary. It's not, they don't pay you. Uh, I'm a big sports fan. They don't pay, they shouldn't pay for past performance. Sometimes stupid <laughs> teams do, but you know, they're paying you for your current and future performance. And that's, um, so that, that honestly is what drove me. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to learn this area of law and that'll make me valuable in the marketplace, this and that. I was just working hard because I wanted to do a good job and impress my bosses and, you know, keep <laughs> keep getting bonuses and promotions and, and not get fired. It's a, it's a good motivator. Okay. Yep. It is a good motivator. And um, <laughs> no, when you put it that way, and I especially like the part about kind of like making sure that you put in your best in a sense and that you really earn whatever is given to you. And I think that that's very, 
as someone who has worked to get opportunities, I think that that's a nice way that you've actually maintained and made the most of those opportunities. So thank you for sharing. And after that experience, I think you you started working um, in-house. So um, since you weren't applying for jobs, I think someone would have approached you to work, I think, um, in the like, more transportation um, field after that. I think you became the assistant general counsel at Rider Systems. So how was that switch again, like from someone who was working in a corporate law firm now going to something a little bit different? Yeah, so um, it's interesting. I mean, there were a lot of changes. So I was still a lawyer. Um, I was doing employment and labor work. Uh, it, it's a very different place. Ryder, uh, for those who know, they do truck leasing and logistics work and um, transportation. And it's it's very smart people who know a very complex industry, but they're not you know, Ivy League intellectuals, let's say, right? They're very writing very short and sweet emails. My uh, my bosses had to beat out of me the desire to write long, uh, long essays explaining my rationale and reasoning and think thought process and citations and all the things lawyers do. Uh, so you learn how to communicate with non-lawyers. You learn, I mean, the area of law I did, I was basically the, the company's leading expert in my particular areas. Even my bosses didn't really know. The general counsel was a generalist and she was a corporate lawyer and my boss was an employment lawyer, but she didn't know the traditional labor or benefits or some of the other areas I covered. So you learn very quickly. Um, uh, I had to grow up very quickly in terms of, there was, when, I, when you're an associate in a law firm, the partner's always there to sort of backstop. They're always reading everything you write. They're making sure your advice makes sense. You don't get a lot of full autonomy. Once I went in house, um, and I loved it, by the way. I wanted that. I was always a go-getter. I always hated that I looked young and I um, I was viewed as too junior. I always said, if you're smart and you're doing well, why can't you, you know, move up faster? And and so I liked, I loved the in-house environment where I did feel like, hey, I'm the company's leading expert. I'm confident in what I know. I have learned. And I, I never lacked for confidence in that, uh, especially once I felt like I knew what I was doing. And I really enjoyed that experience, enjoyed uh, I really learned a great deal from the people I worked for. I loved, um, uh, I always, I, it was it was my first experience in a big company. Big companies are unique, right? They have culture things and internal office politics and all that stuff. I kind of had to learn how to navigate those things. I watched a lot. Um, if I have like one superpower, my mother will tell you, uh, it was always that I could learn mistakes from, I could learn from other people's mistakes. like. Growing oh, up, that's I, such a good superpower to have. Like. Yeah, it is. So I could watch other people deal with the office politics and kind of make mental notes and figure out how to do things differently and not make those same mistakes or, or make the same good moves. And that was an, an enormous advantage, I felt, um, as I got older and, and got some promotions there. And then as I moved to other companies, um, learning how to navigate the world because there are the written rules that a company has and those are important, but the ones that are really important are the unwritten rules that nobody writes down, nobody tells you, you just kind of have to figure them out. And uh, that's not always the easiest. And that for me, my few years at Ryder, I probably learned that stuff. Uh, that was the most valuable stuff I learned. Okay, and and I'm just gonna meander away a little sure. bit from your story, uh, because because you mentioned this whole unwritten rules kind of thing, and I think that um, in every job, in life in general, I think there's just so many things that um, 
is dependent on context? Is it important to kind of like reading the room? And um, you actually, I think, was featured in an article by Vanguard on emotional intelligence and how basically that kind of like makes or breaks um, your career and kind of like gives you that added bonus when you are working somewhere. Um, and can you share a little bit more about how you view emotional intelligence and how do you think it can be applied in the workplace? And is it important or is it just yeah. a part of thought? No, no, it's, it's, it's the most important thing. So this is, um, this is my passion in, in my work life anyway, and actually my personal life with my kids. Uh, I, th I think the book was written in the late 90s. I'd have to look, but right, right around this time period, um, there was a book written uh, by a guy named Daniel Goldman. He was, at the time, the social sciences editor for the New York Times, and I always liked reading his stuff in the newspaper. And he wrote this book called Emotional Intelligence, which was not a thing back then. Now everyone talks about EQ, but it was not a big thing back in those days. Uh, but he, he was basically going through the, the EQ literature, which was just sort of a burgeoning um, field at that point. And the purpose of his writing the book was essentially to say, uh, people who are more successful in life, in their careers, in their family life, just happier uh, in every metric you could think of, uh, it actually, and, and career specifically, when you talked about like higher salaries, more promotions, more job satisfaction, all the things someone would want from a career, it was actually not correlated to IQ, it was correlated to EQ. So the higher your EQ, the more success and, and satisfaction you had. And that was a revelation for people. And, and his point in writing the book was to say, look, the good thing about EQ compared to IQ or among the good things is IQ is kind of set. EQ, you can learn. So let's teach kids EQ and, and think about that for education and, and for children, you know, young children, you think of the marshmallow test, right? Where the kid does he eat the marshmallow yeah. and we're not to get the two, right? That's like a very early test of EQ. Let's teach kids EQ and that will help kids be more successful and more satisfied in their in their work lives and in their lives generally. And when he wrote the book, I read it and I said, oh, that, that's cool, that makes sense. But there was a cavalcade of attention from companies, businesses, business people, CEOs, heads of HR, all coming to him saying, you have put words to things that we could never put words to. This is what we've always looked for. Do you have tests we can give? Do you have trainings? Like begging him. So he quit his job at the Times. He founded a consulting firm. He wrote another book called Working with Emotional Intelligence, which really just addressed, he had a million anecdotes and stories of emotional intelligence in the workplace. And But the one thing he really focused on in that second book, and I apologize, this is a long-winded story, but I, I feel very passionate about this was, uh, I feel very passionate about this. His story was, or not his story, but what the evidence showed was some people say, okay, this is fine for you know, an accountant. And if this accountant's smarter than that accountant, I don't mean my dad's an accountant, so I don't say that to disparage accountants. But if you think about jobs that re require very high IQ, so you think of doctors, lawyers, engineers, you know, rocket scientists, whatever the profession is that requires an extremely high IQ, you would think, okay, well, EQ is not gonna be as important. And actually what the data shows is it is much more important uh, oh. that the, what separates people, right? Because if you're a rocket, you know, a physicist or a scientist or a, everyone's got a high IQ. So what separates the good from the, the great in, in that circumstance or the mediocre from the people who really succeed is, is the EQ, how they communicate, their judgment. Can they show empathy? Can they 
relate in plain English to whoever they need to, what they're doing. Can they manage people? Because you move up. I mean, my, I started managing people when I moved to Ryder, uh, or I, I started, I hired one person and then had two people reporting to me. No one, they don't, companies don't do a good job of teaching you that stuff, right? So your IQ and your ability as a lawyer, I sometimes think there's an inverse relation between what makes a good lawyer and what makes a good manager. So <laughs> having a having a high eq or or working on your eq and making yourself a good leader and a good manager uh is is really what makes the difference and so as i went through my legal career i'm i'm a fine lawyer i mean i give i give good advice i know what i'm doing i i think i, I don't make really bad mistakes but that's not why i've to the extent i've been successful and i think i've been pretty successful my success is not because of my lawyering skills. Because again, in-house, like nobody knows if I'm giving good advice. 90% of the time you can give advice, it might be good, it might be bad. It doesn't matter because it's you know contingent issues that might not ever come to pass. But people know if I return a phone call, if I'm a nice person to talk to, if I explain things well, if I have a good disposition, if my employees are engaged, if I have a good working team, if I have good taste in uh, hiring and and recruiting and you know developing my team, all of those things have nothing to do with my IQ. It's all about my interpersonal skills, EQ, soft skills, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and and so that for me has been a passion getting it to lawyers because lawyers we grow up and everything is about how high is your LSAT score, what's your GPA, what rank is your law school, you know, did you make top ten percent in Law Journal, and you know what was the rank of your firm in the rankings of partner, you know, cut share per partner, how much they make. And then everything is very merit, merit, meritocratic. And it's all focused on, you know, if you're smart, you'll be more successful. And I try to tell people it's actually not the case. It is to get into those worlds. But once you're there, it's all this other stuff that matters more. Hmm. Okay. I think that's a very, as you said, I think it's a perspective that even though it's a bit more common now, it's still something that many people need to hear. And yeah. um, the, the interesting part about you is you also slowly kind of like transitioned to a dual role um, in your career journey so that you started um, being head of human resources. And HR, in a sense, I feel um, like being head of the legal department, you've got your team, but then merging that with HR, now you've got kind of like everyone <laughs> that is kind of like under this umbrella that you can instill yeah. emotional intelligence in. And how do you kind of like bring this philosophy of getting people to prioritize their emotional intelligence in the whole organizations that you've worked with? And how even did you did you manage to balance that with your existing um, kind of like position as someone in who's really high up in the law section of the company itself? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, look, HR was always my client internally, essentially, because I did labor and employment law, which is which is really supporting the HR team. So a lot of my job was pointing out all the mistakes that HR made and where they, made, they could do things better and uh, sort of seeing all of their flaws. And it wasn't only that, but, but you know, it's, um, there's a lot of that. And uh, so for me, uh, I have described a, a, a company as like a giant car. Uh, the legal department is the muffler of, of, a, of a car, right? It's like all the junk that, um, uh, you know, the company produces gets, you know, has to go through the muffler and we try to clean it up and make it so it doesn't create smog and it, you know, the stuff comes out clean. Uh, but you're at the tail end, literally tail end of 
the process and legal. Uh, we're, we were not, not engaged on the front end of decisions. We were not there as things were sort of happening. And so I, it was a, I don't say natural, but it was a, a big desire of mine. And I felt a natural progression to want to move up the chain of decision-making to be further up. And, and for me, the natural part was to be with HR so that I could prevent all of the things that I was trying to clean up on the, on the back end in, in the legal department. And so, um, and, and I'd seen some of the micro mistakes that HR made, but I also saw the macro mistakes because the big things that HR did and that I think I tried to bring at least a, a, a piece of what is emotional intelligence, which is um, empathy. And empathy is very different than sympathy and sometimes people get them confused, but uh, it's very important for HR it's, it is important to be sympathetic, you know, when people come and they have issues, but the empathy part is your, as an HR person, your internal clients, right? So you have the operations, finance team, all the people kind of doing the main parts of the business. And HR people love HR and they love what HR does and they like the cool toys that HR creates and their systems and processes, but they don't always focus on what it is the business really needs. And I've, I've given this speech to a lot of CEOs and CFOs and COOs about, you know, I got into HR because I didn't like what HR do, did all the time. Like I saw what they did and I saw it wasn't working. Even if it was cool stuff, it wasn't the right thing for this company at this time. And it always resonated, like unbelievably. I, again, I had no idea. They said, yes, that's always been my problem with HR. They're off in their own world doing, I don't know what, that has nothing to do with what our needs are. And so my focus has always been, uh, so, you know, at times people talk a lot in business, especially in the executive ranks about being strategic versus tactical. And, you know, they ever, they want everyone to be strategic. Sometimes the best strategy, and I, one of the smartest CEOs I ever worked for said, you know what our strategy is for this year? We're doing things. We're just doing things. We're getting <laughs> stuff done. That's our strategy. We don't need a fancy strategy. Right. And, and that I took that to heart, every a lot of organizations I've gone into, my strategy in HR is we're just gonna do the basics. Sometimes it is really important just to make sure that the HR information systems are right and payroll is done correctly and we're doing the benefits well and people are getting their questions answered and we're getting the questions answered correctly and quickly and we don't need to do all the fancy stuff and we don't need some fancy program. HR people love doing that stuff. It's not, it's not fun to make sure that benefits questions are entered correctly and the payroll works and the HRIS doesn't have errors in it. No one calls you and thanks you for that or gives you internal awards. But the but if you're not doing that stuff and people are complaining about it and getting upset, it, it like crumbles the infrastructure from, it crumbles the company from the inside. And so um, that's always been, you have to get the basics right first before you can do all the fancy stuff. And a lot of times companies never get that base or HR departments and companies don't get that basic stuff right. And so that's, and that that's EQ, right? That is understanding what the needs are, having that empathy, being able to place yourself in that shoes and what do they need from me right now as a support function within an, uh, an organization or a company and, and being able to match your work with their needs as opposed to just doing what you feel like doing because it's more fun or interesting to you. So, uh, and, and, you know, leadership is, I set the tone. I, I, I like to do no actual work these days. That's how I like to describe it. People, it's a little different, but 
I'm not doing the substantive stuff. I have people working for me in large teams and the higher up you go and the more people you have working for you and the more departments you have, the less work work you can do, but you set the tone and you find the right people and you make sure you find good people. And again, this is all EQ, right? High IQ people don't have any better judgment, sometimes worse judgment, determining who's gonna be good at leading teams or running projects or doing those sorts of things. And in fact, sometimes they make mistakes because they're looking, they think I'm here because I'm brilliant. I need to find other brilliant people. But brilliant people oftentimes are not good to work for. They're not good leaders. They don't have good empathy, right? So that's where EQ, the CQ thing, I mean, I talk about it from law perspective. It works for everything. It works in the medical profession. It works, I mean, if you read that book, it's every profession. And again, the higher level intelligence it takes to do something, the more these skills matter. And how has it been like, like as, as you mentioned, in leadership in a way, um, you went from managing law departments to managing law and HR in a sense. And I think that, as you said many times, um, it's a very good merge because you see things at the at the end that kind of went wrong in the beginning and you have that you're in that position now that you can kind of like make sure that the solutions get implemented at the root cause, which I think was a brilliant way to go about it. But again, you come in into this HR position, you have a new team, people who probably think a little bit different than you're used to. And yet your job as the leader is kind of like to pull everyone together and to build a team out of both sides in a way. So how do you actually manage to create these high performing teams? What's your secret sauce in a way? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I will tell you actually my secret sauce, um, which is uh, I mentioned before that I, I sometimes can learn from other people's mistakes. Um, I've had a lot of bad bosses, uh, especially as a lawyer, as I mentioned, a lot of times what makes a good lawyer makes a bad manager. So <laughs> usually by default, you you uh, I end up I ended up with some bad managers. A lot of my career, I've literally just looked at how people treated me when I didn't like the way I was being treated. And I don't mean like people being mean to me, but just like I thought bad management and said, okay, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that. And just by that negative decision-making, doing the opposite, I ended up having a pretty good management style, I think. Um, so that's part of it. The other part is uh, success breeds success. So it might not sound sexy to like get the basics right, especially in something like HR or even legal, right? There's not a lot of, um, I have over here, I have a hat that says nothing happened because a lot of times when you do your job well in legal, nothing happens. Same with HR, right? Or payroll or something like that, right? When you do your work correctly, nothing happens. Um, and, and I used to give out awards for that, right? <laughs> that, that, you know, congratulations, nothing happened. You did a good job this uh, year or month or whatever. Um, but, giving people a vision and, and a lot of times especially hr is a good example so the boss and the the executives in hr oftentimes love the fancy stuff the people on the ground they understood that this was stupid because they're like why are we focusing on all these crazy things that they're talking about in our conferences that i don't even know what they're talking about when we can't get you know they're the ones taking the calls and getting the complaints and hearing all the noise from the field and why things are broken and need to be fixed so I have found that when you set out a vision, communication is very important, and it's a huge part of being a leader. When you set out a vision, explain why, right? People are adults. A lot of times people are by default very paternalistic, and they don't want to tell people real things, and they think they have to sort of play hide the ball or like trick them into doing something. I'm a, 
I always, I'm not smart enough to like do subtext. I just come right out and say what I think and say what I mean and what's on my mind and tell people, look, your department is failing these people in all these different ways. And this is what I want to do. And this is how we're going to fix it. And once we do this in a year or two, then we can go and do more of the fancy stuff. People just want to have a vision. They want to understand how their piece of, the, of, of work is part of the bigger puzzle. You know, they're a cog in a wheel and knowing that they're part of a bigger machine and what the goal is. And, and uh, it gives people, inspiration is a strong word, but it gives them a purpose and they understand what, why they're doing what they're doing. And, um, and it sets them on a path. And then you, as I said before, I let them go. I don't get in people's way. My management philosophy, some people call it servant management. I don't go, I don't think it's quite that, but it's, I try to remove obstacles that my team has in their way. I try to give them, they're busy. They have a lot of work to do. They're professionals. They don't need me to give them assignments. I try to remove obstacles because companies just naturally oftentimes put obstacles in people's way. You have cultural issues. You have, you know, people with embedded issue, um, concerns or interests. And, and I try to help remove those obstacles for people. Uh, and usually, by the way, people appreciate that. They appreciate me helping them instead of piling work on top of them. So there's a lot you can do to inspire people that, again, has nothing to do with 90 plus percent of the people who've ever worked for me know more about whatever they're doing than I ever will know about what they're doing. So it's not about being able to do their work or tell them how to do their job. It's about enabling an environment where they can be their best. That's leadership. Okay. Enabling an environment where they can be their best. Everyone write that down, quote it, put it on a t-shirt. That's a very nice way to summarize. But it, and you are someone who has been, I would say, very successful as a leader and more than just having a high performing team, you have a very diverse team. Um, I, I think when I mentioned earlier that you actually really led the legal department of DHL to be award winning and recognized by um, the minority council as well. You had a team which was 50% women, 50% minorities. Um, how do you manage such a diverse team? And also you work in MNCs, which means there's a global element to it. You've got to meet people, you've got to work with people in different parts of the world. So with all of these different cultures, the way different people work and how do you actually foster a community that's diverse and yet effective in a way? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I, I don't, again, I, there was a bit of luck involved. I live in Miami. It's one of the most diverse cities in the world. Um, it would almost be hard for me to hire a team that wasn't diverse in some way. Uh, if I had a team of all white guys and in, in South Florida, uh, there would be really something wrong with me. Um, so th that's part of it. But look, not my whole team was not always in South Florida uh, or even in the United States, as you pointed out. Um, there's a lot to this issue. I am, I've been very passionate about it for a long time. I think it is impossible to provide good uh, work and advice and, and be part of an organization if you don't reflect what the organization looks like or should look like or what your customer base looks like or should look like. And, and as the world diversifies and as um, uh, companies, you know, populations diversify, it is as or more important to uh, mirror that and reflect that because otherwise you're just not going to be able to relate and, and, and work with, uh, with your customers internally and externally. Uh, there are a lot of so one of the things that I hear, excuses I'll call it, uh, that I hear for people like why they can't do this is I can't find anybody, 
or, you know, I already have my team in place or I inherited this team and I'm not going to fire people just so I can hire a diverse team, which is true. Um, but, you know, there are opportunities. One of the things uh, I have uh, sort of a, a applied is, is Moneyball, which is a old uh, Michael Lewis book made into a Brad Pitt movie a few years ago, really good movie. But, and Moneyball is about a baseball team, but what it's really about is market inefficiencies. And so just in the law, uh, you know, it, it, it's a great example. Right now, and for the last several years, over 50% of the graduates from law school are women. But if you look at the percentages of women who are partners in law firms, it's awful. It's like less than 30%. It's like 20 some, you know, it depends on the firm, but you know, much less than the half that are graduating. Well, are these women not as good lawyers? Are they, you know, not as smart? Is their work not as good? No, of course not. That's ridiculous, right? It's the job itself is is tough and and not conducive to uh, some people's life choices and what they want to do outside of work, which is totally fair and appropriate. And the fact that law firms and I mentioned bad management by by lawyers, the fact that law firms still operate that way is is an abomination in my opinion. But their loss is my gain because. I could, you know, to the extent I could find women who wanted to work, but didn't necessarily want to work full time or have to travel all the time or be, you know, 24 seven uh, on call, which I didn't always need. There was plenty of work to be done that could be done on flexible schedules and part time and, you know, taking time off and living different places or whatever. I would scoop them up. And by the way, uh, that's true of minorities, men and women. So, you know, people of color oftentimes have more issues with um, home care, elder care, child care, single parenting, all of those different issues. Um, it was, to me, this was an untapped resource or, or that, that was out in the marketplace. And by the way, it's true in HR, it's true in every field. The people who are able to succeed in most businesses are the ones who are willing to put in the extra time and work late. Like that's always what impresses old school bosses. Um, and, and not that I'm not impressed by that, but I would much rather find these diamonds in the rough who want to work and, and want to, and are really smart and have great experience, but just have other issues. And I'd rather get 70% of an amazing person than a hundred percent of a mediocre person. Um, <laughs> and, and in large part, that's how uh, I built the team and people don't always have traditional career paths and people have three or five or whatever year breaks in their resume. And I, I, it is, a, it is bizarre is a strong word. It is odd to me that um, companies are so uh, punitive with people um, who don't, you know, like don't show commitment or I don't even know what the, what they're thinking when they don't, not just, hire the like look for people like this who are trying to re-enter the workforce or, or something like that. So anyway, I, I get very upset about it because, but this is the, a lot of the work we did in the diversity and flexibility Alliance, because it's just, we have all this human capital out there. That's amazing. And these people want to work and, and companies and firms and whatever are just like not letting them back into the workforce. And it's a bizarre, it's bizarre. And, and, you know, I didn't have to work at diversity. It found me because I was just looking for the best and willing to be flexible about their personal situations. No, but that, that's a very nice perspective. Instead of like 
trying to hold everyone by the same traditional standards, sometimes that is not a measure of intelligence or skill and things like that. And by accommodating uh, even just a little bit to sometimes their schedules, their way of doing things, then I guess you unlock kind of like you said, those hidden gems. And these, this is all like such valuable experiences and such amazing things. All of you listening better, I don't know, digest this well and use this in your lives. But just to kind of like bring together all of these, you've had all of these amazing experiences um, so many things from emotional intelligence to um, even um, having a diverse team to being a great leader. And how did all of this kind of like um, help you during this pandemic? I think in March or in early 2020, mm -hmm. um, you became director of employee relations at Amazon. Amazon is a global company. Um, they are, I think, again, as I mentioned earlier, one of the top five most valuable companies in the world. And you enter this company in the midst of a pandemic. And how does all of these things that you've learned, all of these things that you've experienced kind of like help you succeed in your role and bring everyone together, make sure that everyone is sane during a time, during these kind of times in a way. Yeah. I have to find out what those other four top companies are above Amazon. Cause we're going to, we're, we're going to gun for them soon. Um, <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, you know, the, the truth is I got lucky because I had been promoting and advocating for remote work for a long time um and long before it was long before zoom existed uh and so i was a bit ahead of the curve on that without realizing it part of it is i love living in miami it always bothered me that you know in my career i really didn't want to move my wife has a good job uh and that's sort of tied to the area uh, my kids like living here i like living in a place where i have a community and i know people and you know i see people in other companies um, sometimes the companies sort of to show your dedication, again, you have to move around the country, around the world. Um, and that's hard, especially when you're raising a family. When I was at Ryder and I was a young, impressionable person, I don't think I even had kids yet. There was some vice president in order for him or to get promoted to a vice president, he had to move from wherever he was living to some other city. And it was his daughter's, it was, she was going into her senior year of high school. And she was like, she wouldn't talk to him the whole year because she was so upset because <laughs> she had this whole plans for her senior year of high school and it was all ruined because dad and they, I mean, just heartbreaking, right? But this is how you showed loyalty in 1967 and we haven't changed our minds since then or how we do things. So I always wanted to take a different approach. So I had people working for me in different countries in different time zones. I didn't care where they lived and I still don't. And so I was used to, how do you manage a remote team? How do you motivate people and, and bring a team together and make them feel like a team and part of a team when they're not sitting in the same place? Um, and I always had that, some of it was natural because I managed uh, a whole continent or a hemisphere and had people all over the world, but some of it was, uh, but I had put a lot of thought into these things. So for me, it was just a natural extension of that and then really show, so that was one. And then two was everyone's going through stuff, right? Because even if other people had worked from home by choice, now everyone's doing it not by choice. And it's not so easy for people. You know, I went through a good 10 year period, maybe 12, where my favorite time of the week was Monday morning because I was getting away from my little kids because the weekends <laughs> were hell because I love my kids, but they were a handful and tiring. And I just wanted to go into the office and be around adults and like not hear screaming and people asking me for food and to wipe their behinds all day. So that understanding that people had that going on in their lives, again, showing that empathy of take some time, do what you need to do, 
become, you know, work will be here when you get back. You don't, not everything is an emergency. And we all, it was a double whammy because Amazon's business, for those who know, went through the roof right when the pandemic hit because everyone started ordering things online instead of going to stores. So at the same time, we're all getting used to this new world. We were busy, busier than you can possibly imagine. And so figuring out how to balance everyone working like crazy with whatever personal issues they were dealing with. And really just sometimes it's just voicing it and saying, I understand what you are going through and I'm sorry. If you just say that to people, they will run through a brick wall for you. They will figure it out. Um, I have people and I tell them all the time, like, you don't need to tell me you're going to a doctor's appointment. No one here works nine to five. If you get your work done at 11 o'clock at night, I don't care. I'd rather you not work at 11 o'clock. Um, <laughs> I personally don't. So we'll be done. It'll be about 11 o'clock here. And I'll go on my work computer, which you can see back there. And I'll do a half hour or 45 minutes of emails, maybe an hour. But I don't send any of those emails. Actually, I send a couple because I have some people in Australia who report to me. But but everyone in, in, in the Western Hemisphere, I will do delayed delivery and they'll send out tomorrow morning at eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the morning because no one wants to get an email from their boss at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. Even if I say, this is just FYI, you don't need to respond to me. They see my name, they're going to want to open it, right? That's the most self-aware thing that I've ever heard from any boss, but okay. It's, it's a very... It's a very when I found delayed delivery, because I used to just leave things in draft and it was annoying. When I found delayed delivery on Outlook or when they created that feature, it was like the greatest thing for me because this is all I ever wanted. Because I like to work at odd hours. I would fly on planes in the old days and whatever. And this was a way for me to get messages and do my work when I wanted to do it, but not bothering people. So just stuff like that, showing people you care, showing people. Now, sometimes, by the way, it's not so great because sometimes you wake up at like, or you get to your desk at nine in the morning and you have like six emails in a row from me if I had a busy night. But um, that's when people figure out my trick because you can't send six emails at the same time. But uh, anyway, you just being conscious. And again, telling people, you know that they're going through some tough stuff. Let's get through this period and then you can take some time here and giving people, you know, time days or half days and stuff when they need it. It's just showing people you care and you understand and not trying to be a, um, you know, treat them like robots. It's not, it's, it's hard because not a lot of people do it well, but it's, it's not that hard. Okay. Just think how you'd want to be treated. All right. Treat others the way you'd want to be treated. I think that philosophy is yeah, something that all of us need to work on. And if all of us did that right, then I think the world would be in a much better place. And you show that by example, you show that in your workplace. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, your team probably values you so much. I, I read an article when I was preparing for this interview about one of your ex-employees who still quoted you even after you left the company and said, I learned this from my ex-boss and he, he shared about emotional intelligence. And, and I just thought, wow, okay, people quote you even after you've left. So it's like, you must have left an impact on them. And I can definitely see from your sharing here today how um, that impact extends probably much further than your team and the people around you. And today to all of us who are listening to you today. So thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing all of this. Um, again, I think we've all got to digest and rewatch this a couple of times to get all of the important information out. But once again, thank you so much and um, hope you had an amazing interview as well. I loved it, Harsha. Thank you so much for your time. All right.
So for all of you watching, this has been Changing Reality. We've been interviewing Joshua Frank, who is the head, who is the director of employer relations at Amazon. It's been a lovely interview. See you guys again next week at 10 p.m. EST um, here on WQHS Radio, Penn Student Run Radio. Bye, everyone. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.